Okay. I want to talk this evening about the relationship between mindfulness and what is known as the Brahma Viharas. Um, basically, four ways of dwelling in this world, which the Buddha outlines, one of which, of course, is what we're examining over these few days, which is metta. And when I've done that, hopefully there'll be a little time for a few questions at the end of it. But I want to start the talk with a quotation. It's a quotation which comes from one of the earliest parts of the Pali Canon. Now, the Pali Canon, for those who are not familiar with it, are basically the, some of the earliest texts we have which record the words of the Buddha. The Buddha didn't write anything. Writing wasn't common in the time of the Buddha at all, if, if it was there um, historically. And his words were remembered. They were recalled by those who were close to him. And some parts of this canon, which is a vast collection of discourses, some parts are extremely old. And we can tell this by basically the stylistics and grammar of the original languages. And just one of the little hobbies of mine, I'm translating one of the texts, and I came across this passage, um, which is part of the oldest part of the canon. And it struck me as very, very personal, and it talks about the Buddha's own personal quest coming about, really, by seeing enmity in the world, by seeing hatred and aversion and people expressing it towards each other. And I'll just read this little passage. Fear comes to one who embraces violence. Look at people quarrelling. Let me tell you of the strong agitation that I felt, seeing people struggling like fish in shallow water with enmity towards one another. I became fearful. Wanting a safe place to shelter, I saw that the world lacked substance and that there was not one part of it that was changeless. Seeing people trapped in their mutual enmity, I grew dissatisfied. Then I saw buried in their hearts a barb that was difficult to perceive. A barb is like a fishhook. It is this barb that impels people to run in all directions. Once it is pulled out, the running ceases, as does the inevitable exhaustion which accompanies it. Now, this is a very ancient piece of text. It's about two and a half thousand years old. Um, but I still think it speaks in a very contemporary way to us. The idioms might be ancient, but the ideas are very, um, in some senses, very prescient at the moment in our understanding motivations that drive human behavior and particularly drive enmity and aggression and violence and irritation. Do any of these things sound familiar to people? They are all too familiar in our world, aren't they? All of these aspects of human behaviour. We see it written globally, not just within our own culture. We see these things written very much globally. So the Buddha is very concerned about what drives, what impels this behaviour, and in a sense what the antidote to this behaviour is. 
And I might say something around right at the outset of this. The Buddha is really not interested in what I would term metaphysical questions. He's really uh, very much a practical thinker. He's very much, in many ways, the first psychologist. He looks at the origins of human behavior, not in some other realm, but actually in human psychology, in what we do. Looking at what we do via an understanding of the nature of the mind. And so when he talks about this barb in the heart, which impels this behavior, I like the expression causing us to run in all directions. Um, The running in all directions is really to do with aversion and to do with desire or craving. In many senses, they're one and the same thing because he speaks about craving to have and craving to avoid. And this craving to have and craving to avoid often puts us in conflict with others and, to a degree, ourselves, so that there's a kind of internecine war taking place within us about what we want and what we don't want. And a lot of our behaviour becomes fixated on the wanting and the not wanting, and the wanting and the not wanting. And if we just examine our own lives, often we see this, that um, our lives are made up often, not totally, but often of these strivings to attain things that we want and we desire. And actually the bulk of a lot of this behavior is driven by striving to actually avoid an awful lot of life that comes to us. And one of the things I think we know is that uh, even if we strive to avoid it, certain things we cannot avoid. There are certain aspects of human life which, um, well, perhaps one is about human death, for example, that we can't avoid. So the Buddha really is looking at the origins and how do we deal with these problems, how do we deal with this barb in the heart that causes this exhaustion, this running in all directions, that causes and is responsible for a tremendous amount of this enmity. His answer, in many ways, is quite simple. It's by directing our minds in a certain way so that we begin to become much more familiar, much closer to our actual experience and not trying to avoid what is going on for us. To deal with what we can deal with but not to get ourselves tied into knots trying to avoid the things that we cannot avoid. Or desiring the things, for example, which he says will not make us happy. They will give us pleasure, but they will not make us happy. They will not, actually, and his definition of happiness is contentment, they will not bring about contentment in our lives. He likens, for example, the striving for materiality as a solution to the problem of human distress as a bit like a dog sitting outside of a butcher's shop who is thrown a bone and continues to chew it. Um, And unfortunately, this bone has absolutely no meat on it whatsoever. And the dog chews and chews and chews and chews and gets no nutrition from it whatsoever. And uh, the striving for material things is often likened by the Buddha to this, um, that we chew and chew and chew over the material things, um, but actually we don't get much satisfaction out of them whatsoever. 
And what happens is um, we look for a new bone to chew. And we continue looking for new bones to chew in the hope that we'll find one with a bit of flesh on it, um, which is going to give us some kind of sustenance or nutrition, something which will bring about some degree of contentment. The Buddha is not being pessimistic. I think he's just being realistic about this, that um, this striving for finding satisfaction in external things is a futile, a futile desire, a wasted passion that we're striving to attain something. His contentment exists as a contentment which comes from within, a contentment which actually culminates in the fourth of what these, um, these particular um, practices are called, which is the Brahma-viharas, culminates in upekka or equanimity. And I shall say something about all of these Brahma-viharas. So his is a strategy to deal with human distress, but based on a psychological realism of how we actually behave in this world. Not how we would like to behave, but how we actually do behave. And how we can fashion and shape the mind in such a way that it deals with what arises. It deals with what Shakespeare would have called the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So that we're not constantly buffeted by what is occurring to us in our lives that we retain balance and poise. And this is very much the theme of equanimity. In many ways, this big word that I know some of you will know that's being used in nirvana. I use particularly the Sanskrit version of this because it's more familiar. Nirvana is actually more allied in the Buddha's mind with a degree of contentment. You know, a freedom from being buffeted by the winds of fortune by the winds and the change of what happens in our lives and the winds and change of what happens in our minds, so that we're not caught up and driven by it. Now, his strategy, as I say, is one of looking with close attention at what is going on. He calls this, actually in Pali, which is one of these early languages, he calls this Yonaso Manasakara, paying you know, appropriate attention to things. Yonaso actually means an attention that looks at and actually probes the origins of things. So it's an attention that we bring to bear on our experience. The Buddha, as I say, is not interested in answers which come externally, but answers which are generated internally or strategies which we can deal with and evoke for ourselves. Um, out of our own psychological, you know, our own psychological manifestations, what we actually have, rather than what we expect to come from you know, some mysterious source. So it's a very practical path. His main strategy, the word that's used in this ancient canon as a technical term, more than any other word in the whole of the canon. Uh, in a technical sense, is this word which is translated as mindfulness, which is sati. This particular word, mindfulness, um, is a coinage of the late 19th century. It was an attempt to translate this early Pali term, um, which actually has many, many other meanings. Uh, And mindfulness, although it's useful, it's not often a terribly good translation. Probably the best translation, and it's not so easy to say, is present moment recollection. 
And this is probably the best translation of it. The term actually has within it a meaning which means to recollect, to remember. But this is not historical recollection, it's not historical remembrance. This means to recollect in the moment what one is engaged in. So it's almost, and I think this works quite well in English, it doesn't work so well in many other languages, but it works well in English, because this is a recollection, a remembrance of things, hyphenated here, so that we begin to draw the mind in from its fragmentation, its scatteredness, into some degree of wholeness, which then brings about, in a sense, a healing once we start to move away from this sense of being dispersed, being proliferated in all sorts of directions, and particularly the scatteredness of our aversive tendencies and our tendencies towards craving, our tendencies towards desire. Craving, in its dual sense, it's a Janus-faced word, because as I say, it means actually the craving to avoid as well as the craving to have. This word in the original language actually has a tremendous pathos to it. It sums up the human condition, that we're kind of driven to try and find our solution to the problems of life, the problems that we encounter, the distress and the dissatisfaction that we often encounter in life via strategies of desire and avoidance. This is the sadness behind it. And in the original language, as I say, it has a tremendous pathos to it because it never ends. It never ends once we're caught up in that cycle. We actually have to make a deliberate, in a sense, attempt to end this cycle of craving, this cycle of what is known as tanha. The word literally means thirst. We're thirsting for something. So that, as a feeling tone of a lot of life, in this thirsting, there is a sense of dissatisfaction. Gosh, I'm cheering you up, aren't I? (laughs) There is a sense of dissatisfaction that runs through life. Even if it's not fully manifest, it can be like the background of experience that something isn't quite right, that even all of our machinations to try and get what we want and avoid what we don't want, actually end up being pretty futile. Um, The more we try to avoid things, often the more they come to us. It's a bit like the the cat that you don't want to sit on your lap. (laughs) It comes and plonks itself right there. And the same is true of many of these things. And of course, certain things in human experience, as I indicated by death, cannot be avoided. So, as a result, actually, of this craving, and the craving itself is twofold, because the craving is, in a way, asymptomatic of the sense of dissatisfaction and driven by it, and also exacerbates the problem. It's it's a twofold sense. It's working in both directions. It's partly responsible for the dissatisfaction and is partly indicative of the dissatisfaction as an attempt to solve the problem by pleasing ourselves, avoiding things, getting what we want. This is the situation. This is the problem situation that the Buddha is dealing with, and I don't know whether it sounds familiar to people. Um, All I know is that um, 
in all the studies that I see that, you know, for example, incidences of mental ill health are arising in our society. Materialism seems to have failed to a certain degree to provide satisfaction in that depression levels are also on the increase. Um, World Health Authority is indicating it's going to be the second major health problem um, in not so many years to come outside of cardiac disease. Uh, That shows you how serious it is. So we've got an enormous problem, and it just shows the, the, the ways that we try to deal with the problems of life um, really haven't helped us a lot. They have introduced and increased levels of pleasure within society, but pleasure is fleeting. You know, pleasure is something which arises and passes away. And there's no problem with pleasure as long as one understands that that's what it does. It doesn't hang around. You know, it arises and it passes away and it arises and passes away. And we're a bit like the mouse caught on the treadmill <laughs> trying to produce something again and again and again and again to try and stabilise it. Or the addict who has to keep doing the same thing to try and stabilise their hit of whatever it is. So this is the problem situation. Um, the Buddha's solution to it, as I say, in a way, is by beginning to bring ourselves into the present, to bring ourselves face-to-face with our experience, to bring us into relationship with our experience, but not in any aversive sense. We've seen what the aversive sense can lead to in the quotation I offered you at the opening of this, that it's productive of all kinds of enmity. This is what it does. It leads often to violent conflict and disagreements. This is its worst. At its least, it leads to a great deal of grumpiness and irritability in this world, that things aren't going my way. Ever been there? (laughs) Notice how upset we often get when things don't go our way, when I don't get what I want. things don't happen or pan out in the way that they do. Now, within all Buddhist traditions, this has always been, you know, this has been the problem. How to deal with, you know, if you like, life's contingencies, to face, come face to face with the contingencies of life. Um, And one of the main tools for dealing with these contingencies has been the meditations which we roughly label as mindfulness-type meditations, to deal with the situations, to bring us face-to-face with our experience as it actually happens, not as I would like it to happen. There can be all kinds of idealism about how I would like things to be, but they will be as they are. And for a vast bulk of our experience, there is very little that we can do about it. The Buddha talks about, you know, basically three things that we cannot avoid. We can attempt to deal with them, but we certainly can't avoid them. So much so that the American magazine Tricycle, a number of years ago, ran a spoof movie poster. It said, coming to you soon, old age, sickness and death. (laughs) You know, these are things that we cannot avoid. These are the existential facts. So how do we live with them? How do we live with the contingencies of life and the ultimate contingencies of old age, sickness and death? This was at the heart of 
what the Buddha was probing in terms of our psychology and our understanding, how we can actually live contentedly, happily perhaps, to use that word, and I use that word guardedly, how can we live happily in this world knowing those things and knowing that everything won't go our way? Yeah, This is an interesting one. Even the Buddha towards the end of his life, and it's very clear that he, um, you know, he does have an end to his life. You know, he's very much a human being, and he gets old and he dies. He attains approximately the age of 80, which just means a big figure in Indian um, you know, ways of calculating things. Um, but he attains quite an age, and in his final words, you might think he would have offered a great big sermon about how to get on with life and everything else. But his final words can be summed up really quickly. Um, he said, um, absolutely everything you encounter is impermanent, now get on with it. <laughs> yeah. What we've got to do is get on with life in encountering impermanence constantly in our life. The German language poet Rilke, in one of his Duino elegies, which is, I think, in the, in the first elegy, says that we live in this world forever taking leave. Yeah. We are forever taking leave of things. He goes on to say we are like steam rising from a bowl. This is how we are in this world. We have very little substance, very little which earths us. So we have the problem, we have in a sense, well I wouldn't say a solution, we have a way of encountering what we cannot avoid. This way is this form of present moment recollection. To be here fully, to be experiencing fully, not to be avoiding, not to go through these strategies of craving and avoidance and craving and avoidance, which actually ultimately get us nowhere and lead to further dissatisfaction and lead to further misery. Let's put no too fine a point on it in our lives. Now that I've really depressed you, hopefully I can cheer you up a bit. Um, because things can get better. Yeah. This, this was the Buddha's message. Things didn't have to be like this. But there was a way of living in this life, and this way of living in this life was through the development of sati. And through the development of other form of sati, and there are many forms of sati, there are many forms of mindfulness, a form that is so fundamental, which is friendliness, a boundless friendliness towards things. If we saw that the part of the origin of the Buddha's own search was in the witnessing of enmity, then in a way part of his solution to this problem, to walking the path, was the development of friendliness across the board, towards ourselves and towards others. Now, I mentioned last night, this is usually translated as loving-kindness. This is not a very good translation. Um, It's the most frequent, it's the most commonly encountered one, but really indicates this sense of boundless friendliness, a friendliness which is uninterrupted by any particular boundaries of sex, caste, creed, whatever it might be. You know, that we open towards others. It doesn't mean, and I might say this, I was saying this to a group earlier on, 
It doesn't mean we have to like everybody. It doesn't particularly mean we have to like a lot of what, we, what they do. And we look around this world and we see an awful lot to dislike in the way that people behave. But this friendliness is a fundamental movement towards others. It's a movement of charity. It's a movement of overcoming our reactive patterns of not only seeing things we dislike, but developing an aversion and a hatred not only to the things we dislike, but to the people that perpetrate them as well. This often comes, and this is why we spend so much time and why I'm spending so much time this weekend, on actually developing a degree of friendliness towards ourselves because this friendliness towards ourselves is a fundamental, as I say, acceptance of our own imperfections and our own foibles in this world. We start from the place we are. We don't start from a place of idealisation. We start from actually how we are in this world. Now, none of us, I don't think, perhaps there might be somebody lurking out there who has this awakened state. Um, I, for one, can put my hand up and say, well, it's not me. Um, But the point of this waking up that the Buddha talks about is to wake up to things the way they are and to live without resentment, to live without aversion. In many ways... You know, the world of ancient India was not that dissimilar to our world. You know, two and a half thousand years ago, they too had a striving after materiality. They also had their status symbols. You know, would be more likely to be the latest elephant. <laughs> you know, to, than rather than the, the new car. Um, There were the status symbols that existed and in many ways human psychology hasn't changed that much. The objects of the grasping, the objects of the aversion remain, you know, slightly, actually come out slightly differently, but in some senses the fundamental psychology remains the same. So the movement towards friendliness both to ourselves and towards others is part of the solution to this constantly striving, constantly being driven, constantly finding ourselves in reactive patterns. And as I mentioned last night, the charity starts at home because it's starting to accept ourselves as we are at this moment with all the imperfections and with all the foibles. It's not starting from a place, as I say, of idealisation of who we would like to be. It's acceptance and using contemporary idiom, owning up to who we are at this moment. Then the movement can take place. Once we accept ourselves in openness and friendliness, the movement can take place from there. I gave you a little bit of the etymology of the word meta last night to expand or to grow fat with friendliness. This was partly its meaning. Um, to spread it out, you know, rather than the kind of repression I said that you couldn't keep down, this is also, this is the friendliness you can't keep in. You know, it's a friendliness which makes itself known, it makes itself felt. It's there in the ability to be able to, let's just take something very simple, listen to the person who really winds you up. 
to be a little bit kinder to that person, to be a little bit more forgiving. And this is the origin within Buddhist terms of forgiveness and forgiveness towards others and forgiveness towards ourselves actually actually arises out of this fundamental sense of friendliness towards ourselves. This friendliness, this metta, is a soil. I mentioned this last night. It is the soil out of which the other virtues, which we call Brahma-viharas, grow. Let me say something about this word Brahma-vihara. It doesn't have any adequate translation into English at all. It's very much of the world of ancient India, very much of the world of that time, and would have meant, if you said it, particularly to a Brahmin in ancient India, that they were going to dwell with Brahma, because that's what actually what it means. Vihara means to dwell, or a dwelling place. Brahma was the chief of the Hindu gods. To dwell with Brahma was a synonym for being liberated. Yeah, and that might mean different things to the different traditions, but anybody who said actually will practice these things and you will dwell with Brahma would have meant that you would have been liberated. Liberated in the Buddhist sense, not quite necessarily liberated in the Buddhist sense, but liberated nonetheless. Now, the Buddha is saying to people, if you really, really want to be liberated in this world, to be liberated from those compulsive behaviors which are based on aversion and based on greed and, and craving, then practice four things. Practice, first of all, metta as the foundation of the world, the soil. And I'll say a little bit more about that and give you something that arises in a much later piece of Buddhist material. To practice karuna, to practice compassion, which is a manifestation of the friendliness. To practice mudita, which is a form of joyfulness, a joy and appreciative joyfulness at others' joys. I extend this in the contemporary world to say even appreciate your own joys, your own good fortune. You know, we don't have to just concentrate on others. It's actually a very good pra- practice to look at the things which are good in our lives. Even if there's a lot wrong, there are often good aspects to it, even. And then ultimately culminating in upeka, culminating in an equanimity, a way of being in this world which is poised and balanced. These all emanate out of this mindfulness which is called metta. Metta is... Sati, sati is metta. This is very, made very clear in some of the ancient texts, and I'll read you one in a minute or two. There's a very lovely illustration that's given in a 14th century Tibetan poem, which puts the relationship between these things. And I'm going to use the English translations of these. So this is friendliness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. The illustration goes like this. It says, out of the soil of friendliness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered by tears of joy and sheltered under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Now, what this presents is a picture of the interrelationship 
between these four things. So we cultivate the soil. In fact, strictly speaking, in the Buddhist tradition, this practice is known as metabhavana. Metabhavana. Metabhavana means the cultivation of friendliness. Bhavana is the word that usually gets translated as meditation. I like to throw my students sometimes by saying, actually, Buddhists don't meditate at all. What they do is cultivate. Uh, The Buddha came from an agrarian society, and the metaphors he mainly uses in the ancient texts are agrarian metaphors. Growing things, cultivating things, weeding. <laughs> you know, he's using things that people would understand in the ancient world. Um, so meditation is very, very much part of you know, the Western um, Judeo-Christian tradition. And in a way, it doesn't, it's not quite, doesn't quite fit onto the Buddhist model of what it means to engage in his practice, and particularly not the metta practice. We might sit there and think, well, yeah, friendliness is a nice idea. Actually, often that's the way we talk about it. I'll go away and meditate on it. <laughs> Which means it's a nice idea, but I actually won't do anything about it whatsoever. Yeah. So this is the active cultivation or the active inclining of the mind towards friendlier attitudes, both towards oneself and towards others. This is something that takes place in the world. What we do on the cushion is merely, I would like to think of it as a nice laboratory experiment. See if you can incline your mind in this particular way on your cushion towards yourself and towards others. And we have these categories which we've started to work our way through today and we'll finish them tomorrow that extend from people who you have some relationship and some feeling for, in a good sense, to those perhaps who you feel indifferent to and those actually you feel very negative towards. And seeing if we can even just artificially incline our minds on the cushion towards, you know, for example, wishing them peace, wishing, wishing them some kind of freedom, some kind of contentment, some kind of ease of living in this world. But the real test, of course, comes out in the world. It comes out in the world, in our relationship with ordinary situations, our work situations, our home situations. None of these virtues that we speak about, either in mindfulness and awareness and understanding, wisdom as it's often translated, None of these mean anything unless they're manifest in our behaviours in the world, unless they become something I stressed to you this morning, unless they become embodied. Unless they actually, in some senses, become corporeal, literally become cellular in our ways. It's all very well sitting in a nice secluded um, meditation centre in the heart of Devon, uh, generating or attempting to incline your mind in, you know, towards you know, thinking friendlier things towards yourself and others, and then go out into the ordinary world and you know, just behave exactly the same way as we did before. You know, the real test, I'm not talking about just a weekend, the real test after a lot of practice becomes whether, for example, I can open myself, as I indicated earlier on, in to a new relationship with that difficult person, 
in the office, in your family, wherever you might encounter them, can you extend just a little bit more friendliness, a little bit more kindness in your, your relationship to that person? Now, that doesn't sound that difficult. You know? But just like mindfulness itself, as one of the other teachers who teaches at Guy House often says, you know, mindfulness isn't difficult. Remembering to be mindful is difficult. kindness isn't that difficult remembering to be kind when one is assailed by all one's normal feelings that rise up in the drop of a hat when you are confronted by that difficult person remembering to be kind is what is difficult remembering to be friendlier to bring a friendlier attitude there is a lot that's behavioural as I stressed a little bit last night within Buddhist practice. There's a lot that's behavioural, a lot that actually um, we work through by engaging in the behaviours, not just sitting on cushions. It's very much a practical path which has a number of different ways of approaching this problem of our distress, of of our being in this world in states of dissatisfaction. And one of them is actually to engage in behaviours. I remember sitting in Tibetan monasteries and another Western monk at the time was saying something like this to a Tibetan teacher. He said, you keep telling me to be compassionate and I don't feel compassionate. And the monk looked at him, the, the teacher looked at him rather quizzically and said, feel compassionate? I didn't say feel compassionate, I just said be compassionate. You know? There's nothing about feeling here. It's actually going out and enacting these things. This is what it's about. So sometimes, as I suggested again last night, if you want to know what compassion is, go out and engage in acts of compassion. If you want to know what friendliness is, go out and be friendly. If you want to know what generosity is, go out and be generous. Unfortunately, we labour in the Western world under the myth of authenticity, which if I don't feel it... It must be inauthentic. You know? Actually, if you think about it, you could wait the whole of your life for the authentic feeling to arise. Yeah. In the, in the you know, absence of the feeling, the Buddha is suggesting go out and do things. So metta is not, as I say, it's there to be cultivated in this laboratory experiment on the cushion, inclining our minds in acts of friendliness to ourselves, in acts of friendliness towards others. But the real test comes, if one practices this for any length of time, is can we be a little friendlier towards ourselves? Can we drop the inner critic? Can we lessen the grip of that carping mind that is always there saying how bad we are? Not to develop an arrogance, develop another form of conceit, but to actually move towards a letting go of our ill will towards ourselves. This dislike that I mentioned again last night in the opening talk. So that we don't become perfect, this is not the idea, but we can lessen our ill will, we can lessen our inner critic that adopts this stance towards our imperfections while striving to behave better. This is all 
a mindful attitude. This is a mindful way of being. Recollecting what is the best thing to do. Recollecting fully in this moment where I am, what I'm doing. As we often know, even when somebody is telling us, and any of you engaged in the caring professions will often know this as well, particularly a lot of it's problem-solving these days, that actually when somebody is trying to tell you what their troubles are, their problems are, you're often already trying to solve their problem before they've finished telling you what they are. We're out there ahead trying to problem-solve. Now, the human mind, the human brain is extremely good at this, problem-solving. It's one of the great abilities of the human brain. But sometimes we have to, rather than just problem-solve, open up. Open up into a listening relationship. It's partly what I've been suggesting in the practices. To open up into a listening relationship to these phrases. A listening relationship to the other. To what the other is saying. To become more of a cleared space rather than just a brain manifesting. or a self manifesting in that moment towards the other, to become a cleared space so that the other can actually be to tell you their problem, to actually allow themselves to be heard in that space. Now, out of that, out of this fundamental mindfulness, out of this fundamental mindful attitude of moving towards others in friendliness, and notice I talk about as a movement towards... Aversion, obviously, is the opposite of that. It's a movement away from. But this is unlike the movement towards of grasping. doesn't seek to hold on and fixate to something. This movement is a movement which allows genuine encounter. A genuine encounter with life and with others. What manifests out of this is, well, the standard translation is compassion a number of words that are used in the Pali Canon one is karuna another one is a lovely word actually in Pali which is anukampa or anukrosha as it is in Sanskrit anukampa is um, the resonance that you feel for another it literally means a trembling along with Um, Another way of translating it is to cry out at the crying out of another, which I think is a beautiful translation of this. So one resonates with, one moves towards. And what it manifests as, and the word karuna means to turn towards something. It has a part of its root, a turning towards something. So one turns towards others, sees others, engages with them, and the manifestation of that is the outgoing kindliness. Manifest in deeds. Compassion, again, is not just a nice gooey feeling. And we get images and visions of what compassion is, and I think even in the Buddhist world people have this kind of overinflated (coughs) ideas of what karuna anukampa are. What it is, is simply the awareness and understanding of another's pain and the ability to try and act in kindliness to help to alleviate some of that pain, if one can. And that can be manifest on the small level, 
you know, just the literal awareness perhaps of somebody's you know, dissatisfaction sitting at the table with you because they haven't got the salt and you pass it to them. To the moving away of, you know, I don't know, a piece of rubble on a path in case somebody trips over it. So it doesn't really matter whether anybody's there, but it's the awareness of others and the awareness of the pain that could occur through you know, doing or not doing certain things here. Now, these two things, these two aspects, these two mindful ways of being in this world, you know, I'm, fortunately I'm glossing these very quickly through time constraints this evening, deal with actually a lot of the fundamental pain yeah. that we encounter, both our, our own pain and the pain of others. Metta is the development of this you know, friendliness towards our own imperfections, as I've stressed to you again and again tonight. Um, but it's also a friendliness towards even the difficulties and the pain that we experience in our own lives and manifests as often actions that we might take to alleviate some of that distress, you know, to alleviate some of the distress that you find. You know, perhaps if you're over-busy, you know, let's just take one typical modern example, one, if you're over-busy, one way of dealing with it might be to do less. And that could be a manifestation of compassion towards yourself, out coming out of a fundamental friendliness to drop some of the things that you do in your life. Now, I only use that as an example. You can probably think of many, many other examples as well. The compassion there, the karuna, the anukampa, is dealing definitely with the pain that others experience. So this, this, you know, this focuses, these two aspects of these practices focus on the harder dimension of life. But life isn't just like that. As one particular Buddhist poem says, you know, life is a play of joy and sorrow. It's not one thing alone. It's a play. It's, a, it's an intermixing of light and dark. Sometimes even in our darkest moments, you know, in our most you know, down moments, a little ray of sunshine of some sort breaks through. There can be laughter. Something will amuse us, you know that um, we didn't think could be possible in that state. So there is often joy there. And the next of these Brahmaviharas, these paths to liberation, actually, the next of these is actually dealing with the joys of the world. Yeah. This interplay of the joy and the sorrow, the joy and the sorrow, as we live our lives. So this deals with the good things, yeah. Traditionally, this is focused on the good things that happen to other people. We've looked at their pain, but we also see that there's so much more that goes on in people's lives. People have good fortune as well as misfortune. Yeah. We ourselves have much good fortune in our lives often, as well as misfortune which occurs to us. Yeah. So we're no different. In the traditional approach to this, this focuses on that joy that occurs for others and to take appreciation in their joy, to have joy at the joy of others. It's a gentle joy, yeah? a gentle joy that experiences joy at others' joy, yeah? even if things aren't going entirely well in your own life at that moment. So again, as you notice, it brings us close to others. 
brings us into relationship. And all of these, you know, all of these four factors, but particularly the first three, have this very deep quality of relationship, of bringing us close to others. Um, if you hadn't noticed it before, we're not in this world alone. Sometimes when we're in our most egotistical moments, we can think that. We become extremely solipsistic. We can think this world is our world. And if it doesn't go right, everything is wrong with the world. Um, We are actually here with others. And this is very much putting it there. Putting this firmly back into our consciousness of our situation. Again, I hate to keep harping on about the original languages, but something again gets lost in the translation of these. Because all of these terms in the original language actually have a quality of adhesion. They literally make us stick to others. Um, It's indicated in the the way the the words are formed in the original language. So they make us actually adhere to others. Literally, they have a quality of stickiness. Whereas all of the negative qualities, such as anger and aversion and irritation, and you, know, you can think of many of the other things, conceit, miserliness, you know, uh, egotism, all of these have the quality of pushing us away from others. Not being, in a sense, part of the engagement of the world. Pushing us into a lonely isolation. And one of the things about the quality, which I've often talked about in this room, about the quality of the I, the self, particularly in its English form, uh, not so much in other languages, it doesn't quite work so well. But if you notice when we draw on, I often do this on a board, when you write the first person pronoun, I, doesn't it look so lonely? <laughs> it's all stick-like <laughs> and lonely. Uh, it has no real quality of relationship. Yeah. There's that sense of egotism, that identification with this isolated, lonely I what we might call the royal eyeness. Yeah. <laughs> this quality of the eye never really gets out to meet others and be with others. And what this gentle joy does, this quality of mudita, is as a mindfulness. And again, we have to look for it. This is the mindful relationship. Too. We have to actually look at the joy of others. When we're in, captured in our solipsistic worlds, we don't see others. The others merely become ciphers, that's all. And we don't actually see them for who and what they are. Finally, and I've really gone over it here this evening, but I just want to finally draw this to a conclusion because this culminates in what I think is, in many senses, the end point of much of this path, which is the quality of living with a degree of equanimity. Equanimity as I suggested to you earlier on, so I'm not going to go into quite so much detail, is to live without being buffeted. But this does not represent a quality of movement away in again to some kind of pristine isolation, separate from the world, sitting, I don't know, on a, on a mountaintop somewhere in the Himalaya or in, in Sri Lanka, um, looking at what others are doing. But this represents an equanimity in the face of being in the world. Actually being there, engaging in your, all your pursuit, pursuits, engaging in your work, engaging in your family life. But a quality of not being, in some senses, buffeted and swayed by what is happening there. So it engages with, it's really part of 
you know, being there in the midst of the turmoil of ordinary life. There's not to be seen as a quality which can develop, be simply developed in isolation. In part of my training when I was living in Sri Lanka, one of the centres where I stayed in Sri Lanka, there used to be a teacher there, unfortunately he's dead now, but what he used to do is he used to get meditators who had been at the place for a while, you know, long-term meditators. You know, it might have been there six months or so. And he'd call them in every so often and say, how are you doing? And they'd say, oh, yes. And this centre, by the way, is way up in the hill country in, in Sri Lanka. Had no electricity, no running water or anything. And it was completely isolated, just surrounded by tea plantations and coffee groves and there were mongoose running around and wild pig and all sorts of things like snakes and that. And it was very quiet, absolutely quiet. And the whole meditation centre was like Gaia House and that it was a silent retreat centre. And he used to call people in and say, how are you doing? And the natural effect after being there for any length of time was that, yes, it was peaceful and you were feeling a lot more peaceful and things were quieter and, and you know, I'm feeling so much more calm with life. And this was kind of constant report by meditators who had been there for a while. And then, um, in response to that, he would often say, OK, if you're feeling that calm, if you're feeling that equanimous, go down to Kandy. Now, Kandy was a typical Asian town. Chaos. You know, it was complete chaos. He says, if you still feel that way in the midst of it, you're doing OK. <laughs> yeah, so the real test was actually out there in ordinary life. So equanimity is not some thing which is divorced from being in ordinary life, but something which is to be found within ordinary life. So that's a kind of brief overview of the relationship between mindfulness and these qualities, which I think in many ways are the most important qualities um, that the Buddha speaks about in developing a path to really being and living wholeheartedly in this world. And so just to finish this, I want to just read you the sutta it's all based on. It's one that particularly deals with just metta, um, but you find other suttas which deal with some of the others as well. And this is the metta sutta. Often in uh, Theravada countries, um, these are the countries of southern Buddhism, which are you know, Burma, Sri Lanka and Thailand primarily, this is often read out on a daily basis, and particularly in schools. I think, what a nice way to start the day, having um, a discourse on friendliness or kindness at the beginning of the day. He who is skilled in welfare, who wishes to attain that calm state, nibbana, should act thus. He should be able, upright, perfectly upright, of noble speech, gentle and humble, contented, easily supported, with few duties of light livelihood, senses calmed, discreet, not impudent, not greedily attached. He should, or he or she should not pursue the slightest thing for which otherwise men or women might censure them. May all beings be happy and secure. May their hearts be wholesome. Whatever living beings there be, feeble or strong, tall, stout or medium, short, small or large, without exception, seen or unseen, those dwelling far, those dwelling near, those who are born or those who are about to be born, may all of them be happy. Let none deceive another, not despise any person whatsoever in any place. Let him not wish any harm to another out of anger and ill will. 
Just as a mother would protect her child, her only child, at the risk of her own life, even so let him or her cultivate a boundless heart of friendliness towards all beings. Let their thoughts of boundless love pervade the whole world, above, below, across, and without any obstruction, without any hatred, without any enmity. Whether he stands, walks, sits, or lies down, as long as she is awake, she should develop this mindfulness. They say this is the noblest way of living in this world. Not falling into wrong view, being virtuous and endowed with insight, by discarding attachment to sense desires, one will never come again to lie in a womb. Now, that last bit, you know, um, within traditional Buddhist cultures often means not being reborn again, but it's simply a synonym for liberation, that one is liberated from being reborn constantly again into the same behaviours. Yeah. And that is the metasutta. And I can't think of a better way to finish off the evening with you. Thank you. If anybody has questions, I'm have about ten minutes. I'm going to run over a bit into the walking period, just about ten minutes or so, and just see if people have any questions or things they would like to just raise at this moment. If not, then we could go away and do some walking. That's a threat, isn't it? <laughs> He does. He says a lot about it. <laughs> um, yeah, the Buddha speaks of really what inhibits that sense of being able to be kind in this world. And he speaks about it very much in terms of what we in the West would probably refer to as negativism, a fundamental self-centeredness, you know, looking out for oneself in a particular way. And it's, it's an eroding of that sense of fixatedness on ourselves that becomes the release mechanism for being able to be with others. You know, so when I, for example, when I talked about you know, the root of this word in Pali, which means to turn outwards, karuna, you know, it's, de- it's derived in two senses. It means to act, because it's derived from something called kriya, but it also means to act in a way that turns outwards to see others. Now, in that turning outwards, there's obviously something being implied here. It means we turn away from ourselves, particularly in in terms of our own neurotic, selfish desires. How I want things to be for me. And so, if you like, the inhibitory block is this notion of the self, which literally um, occludes as being able to see others and really being able to act and empathise and be with others. 
So a tremendous range of ordinary Buddhist practice, you know, both from what I call simple lay practice to monastic practice, is focused on this erosion of any fixed sense of ourselves to open us up to as being a process that can be developed in a particular way, and that way is to be friendlier, rather than to be fixated on um, what is often referred to as a conceit as well, the conceit of self, which is, I am better, I am worse than, I am the same as. These become ways that we see ourselves and block our relationship with others. Yeah. So there's a lot said. I can only give you a kind of real thumbnail. There's not even a thumbnail sketch of it at this stage, but there's an awful lot said all the way through the canon. You know, it's actually by shifting this sense of self, actually beginning to perceive it properly, that we begin to then develop real fundamental relationship with others. Yeah. Yeah. As long as we continue to relate, and I'm not just talking about just ordinarily in speech, but as long as we continue to relate through that sense of I, you know, I, me, mine, you know, that we actually are not really in relationship with others. You know. When we begin to lessen the stranglehold of I, me, mine, then we begin to move into relationship. Thank you. Obviously, this weekend we spent a long time on letter. Yeah. And if we then at home do a half hour or an hour practice, would you? Is it suggested that we do go through all the categories, or that we focus on any particular one, or then? The way I particularly, many teachers do this differently. I mean, the way I usually suggest it is that you take a particular category and spend a long time with it. This is actually part of my own training. So not so much for you know, ourselves, but actually I would say spend a long time with yourself, developing it towards yourself. This is not self-indulgence, by the way. You know, again, I think we can often operate under the feeling that actually directing good feelings towards myself is just simply self-indulgence. It isn't. It's absolutely essential. Um, particularly given what I've said about the relationship we often have with ourselves in the Western world, then I think we should spend you know, a considerable period of time. You know, if you're devoting, say, a year to this, I reckon it, this should be a good third to a quarter of the year you know, that we spend actually um, developing um, meta towards ourselves. And then you can go through the other categories progressively, the spending a bit of time on you know, actually benefactors, as I think I suggested to you when I introduced it today, you know, benefactors are many and numerous. You could probably choose a different one for a meditation period for about five months. Because <laughs> there's so many people who help us in our lives, often go unrecognised. You know, from the smallest things to quite major things in our lives. Dear friend, you know, again, you can spend a long time. It, you know, so you spend a considerable protracted period of time on each category. Then when you've got skilled in that, you can place them together and start to do them within one session. You know, but that really is the training part of it, is actually spending that time with each category. Then contracting it, and perhaps going through them all in, say, an hour session. Yeah. That's in an ideal world.
just wanted to know if it was uh, possible to have this talk as a downloadable file. It will be. It will be. That's exactly what happens to it. Yeah, I think it takes about three weeks to go on to. Yeah, yeah, it goes. That's on to something I'll say again tomorrow. But it's act, they're all placed on dharmaseed.org, which is a fantastic repository of teachings by most of the major teachers um, in the Western world and those coming from the East as well. And uh, yeah, you can get that from you know this talk from there too. Another question about categories. That's when I first started doing this practice um, a long time ago. Um, they always said that when you were dealing with people who either had an aversion towards or felt love for, you should avoid family. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, um, because it sort of it threw up other things. Yeah. Um, and you haven't said anything about that. That's traditional. Yeah, it is traditional. Um, I don't tend to adhere to that so much. I think use whoever, really. Um, in, in, in the traditional categories, and I've heard teachers say that exactly the same way, you know, don't use it because it's all rather very complicated when you start dealing with people, you know, who are part of your family or you're in an intimate relationship with or <laughs> things like that. And I just tend to think, well, actually, that is the real world. That is how we are. We, we are involved with people, you know, whether it's intimate or not, whether it's family or not. We should choose the categories of the people who come to mind most strongly for us initially um, because that's working with real stuff. Yeah. Um, and you might discover a lot of things on the way in doing that too. Because remember what I'm saying about this practice and the way I'm particularly emphasising it as more of an insight practice is you begin to really perhaps to comprehend your relationship with those people. You know, perhaps the person you dislike isn't so dislikable. Perhaps the person who you feel so strongly about doesn't sit in the same way when you develop these phrases. Perhaps they become a little bit closer you know, in terms of the feeling content that you might get out of it. I'm only suggesting that. I'm not saying that is what will happen. But I think working with those categories is very interesting. Um, and not necessarily cutting out you know, members of your intimate family in this. Yeah. I've also had people who've wanted to do it for deceased people, yeah, which also I don't find problematic. Too. So I don't go, go much, so much for the rigorous, um, more traditional viewpoint about this. And one has to remember, actually, the traditional viewpoint isn't that old anyway. Of developing these. I mean, a lot of these practices in their more formulaic way have been developed really over the last 200 years, that's all. Yeah, just one more question. Um, I've just got a question about the, the mindful meditation that sort of the NHS has adopted and, you know, the mood centres and various places like Exeter and stuff. Yeah. So you're putting me on the spot there because <laughs> I actually work in that field myself, you know, in training people, um, in delivering some of this material. 
My honest answer is sometimes it can feel a bit diluted, but actually when you begin to examine the protocols, which are you know, in, for example, the eight-week course in MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, by the way, for anybody who's not familiar with this, it's the utilisation of meditation techniques within uh, more of a clinical setting to help people with depression and mental health problems, and particularly depression has been shown to be very effective in depressive relapse. But I don't see it necessarily, when I look closely at the protocols that's involved, you know, for example, meta is there. It's, cl- it's very much stressed. You know, not, we never name it in that way. We never actually forefront it and foreground it in the way I've been doing here. But it's very much in a lot of the ways that it's taught, the t- you know, teaching of turning towards something gently, being friendlier, you know. Um, using kindness there. I mean, I hear all of these words being used within the protocols and the ways that they're taught. So even just on what we're doing this weekend, I find it implicit, not necessarily explicit. Now, that actually might, considering the context in which it's taking place and being disseminated, is probably a far better way of doing it than to actually flag it up. And because you, know, you keep hearing me probably averting to the fact that this isn't that well translated and this is, you know, means this and it actually not teased out in quite this way. I think we can do a lot of this, you know, and I try to do this myself within these contexts, um, much more implicitly rather than explicitly. So I don't find it so much of a delusion. I think there's a lot of learning process. This is why you know, Buddhist teachers... Um, such as myself and others. You know, I mean, Christina Feldman is involved in the Exeter course and teaches there, Michael Chaskelson in, in the course up in Bangor, um, all um, basically giving the Buddhist background to this material. You know? And I think this dialogue will encourage it to develop. You know, one has to remember, in many senses, although... You know, it's taken off quite rapidly. MBCT um, and MBSR, even to a certain extent, are in their infancy. They're not, you know, they're quite uh, young disciplines at the moment. And I think there's still a lot of dialogue going on uh, between, I think, the traditions, uh, the approaches out of which it's derived, and, of course, the development of this whole way of doing things. And I think it will move on. I think it will change as it comes. And perhaps the dialogue will become you know, even deeper uh, in relationship to it. So I, the basics for me, and the reason actually why I got involved with it, was I just thought this was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, if I ever uh, could have imagined 40-odd years ago when I got involved in this stuff, that Oxford University would be teaching a course on meditation, basically, which is what it is, okay, within a lot of cognitive therapy as well, but basically teaching a form of meditation within... You know, one of the most you know um, oldest universities in the world, then I would have been absolutely astonished. Now that it is being done so, and that it is actually helping people, I think that's the most important part about it. I mean, the Buddha taught what he taught um, to actually help people alleviate distress and pain within their lives. You know, that was that was the bottom line. And something I often say to the students in Oxford, actually, mindfulness isn't Buddhist. Mindfulness, if it is a psychological quality that can be developed, is human. It's just that this particular tradition 
has had it within its, you know, its you know, focus for two and a half thousand years as being a way of helping us to deal with living. Yeah? But the quality itself is not Buddhist. The quality itself is a human quality and everybody can develop it. It's, it's part of the gift to humanity in many ways, that, that it is there. And anybody from any particular religious tradition, if they open to it, if they don't let those traditions get in the way, can utilise it, because I don't think it's in conflict with any of it. You know? So that's the kind of short answer, although it was rather long. <laughs> OK, I think we should stop there, and thank you uh, for those questions. And a short period of walking, and then we'll come back and do a short meditation, probably about 15, 20 minutes just to finish the day. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.